Hello, everybody. Welcome. As we continue on in our study through the Bible, uh, we're over five years in. We did the entire New Testament in just about five years, and now we've jumped into the Old Testament, working through. We're going to do this together, this together as well. It's a 15-year journey, and uh, so just for the Old Testament. So it was 20 altogether. We're doing pretty good. Hey, we've done five and a half years. So we'll finish it up, and then we'll start all over again, another 20 I'll be 90, and then one of the grandkids can pick it up. Um, I think it's good to look through the Bible this way. Uh, remember, we talk about context all the time. You, you want to have a context when you study the Word, which means in general you have to be very careful about going to a spot, looking at a verse, and then building a whole big deal out of that one verse. That one verse, you might be able to do that as long as what you take out of it is taken in context. And that means it fits with why it was written and when it was written and who it was written to and what it was all about. And uh, so we're spending our time working through the text. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible, as you know. Some of it's kind of hard um, to deal with. Um, a lot of this Old Testament stuff that you're going to be exposed to is difficult to read. Um, there's some really rough times. Um, but remember, always be looking um, at the crimson thread of redemption, which started in Genesis 3.15, everything is moving towards Jesus at the cross and, and how he redeems us. And you will watch that thread throughout the Bible. You'll watch God protecting it and you'll watch the enemy attacking it. And um, over and over again, the enemy tries to disrupt what God has put into place. He can't do it, but you'll see how sovereignly God acts um, throughout history in this process to make sure that um, we would have a chance at being reconciled as he promised in Genesis 3.15. He made good on his promise at the cross. And it's, it's fun to watch the Bible making, seeing that happen throughout it all. So that's going on through the whole thing. So uh, we're studying the book of Genesis. I said, you know, the first 11 chapters or so of Genesis are kind of covering four main events that we looked at, the creation, the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel and the dispersion following that. And then these next chapters we'll deal with in well, lots of things, but in particular, just, just a way to remember. You know, it's good to sort of think about what's going on in the Bible. It helps you to find verses when you're looking for them. The, the, the rest of Genesis really deals with Abram and his life and events and all the people relating to him. Isaac, his life and events, people relating to him. Jacob, his life and events, people relating to him. And Joseph. And um, this will lead us up to the Exodus and, um, you know, the, the captivity and the 430 years in bondage and, um, to Egypt. And you'll see how this has all been prophesied and why and what happens and how God, you know, intervenes and all those things are happening. But we're, we're still just in Abraham's life. Now, remember last time we were together in Genesis 17, he, he went from being called Abram to Abraham, um, you know, which means now the, the added ha, which means he would be a father of multitudes uh, and um, God gives him that name, and he's, you know, he's got one Ishmael son right now whom he likes, but uh, he kind of put before God, how about doing Ishmael? And he said, no, that's not the right guy. And remember, he got, how he got in trouble with that in the whole process. So anyway, you got all that happening. So um, time is moving on now. Abram, uh, Abraham at this point is, is 99 and uh, he started his journey with God at 75, so he's got some time in. He's got a lot of time waiting. Um, Ishmael was when Abram was 86. Remember, they got tired of waiting. 
And so he had Ishmael at 86, and now it's, he's 99. And, uh, uh, on, and in Genesis 18, what you're going to see is that all of a sudden, these three strangers show up. Um, and uh, what we'll find out, and, and we don't know this immediately, neither does Abraham, just these three guys show up. Two of them are angels, and one of them is the Lord. And uh, nothing about their appearance told Abraham who they were, but as he fellowshiped with them, he learned that he was entertaining royal visitors. Now, when the Lord appears, um, when there's appearance of God in the Old Testament uh, in, in, a, in a visible form, that's something that's known as a theophany. Theophany. You should know that. It's just one of those fancy terms, but it's a theophany. It's a manifestation of God in the Bible, tangible to the human senses. Um, <clears throat> so, um, it, it's, a, it's, it, it's a visible appearance of God. Um, most often, in the Old Testament period, most often, but not always in human form. Um, so there's some, I've got a few examples of theophanies you can look at. I just put a few. You can put more in Genesis 12, 7, 9. It says, the Lord appeared to Abraham on his arrival in the land God had promised him in his descent. The Lord appeared. It was a visible manifestation. Genesis 32, 22. We'll see that later on. Jacob wrestles with what appeared to be a man, but it was actually God. He wrestled with him all night. In Acts 3, uh, Exodus 3, 2, pardon me. God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush telling him exactly what he wanted him to do. So it's a different type of theophany. But normally, it, these things happen in human form. Um, they didn't happen all that often in the Old Testament, but they happened. And so um, uh, some theologians believe that every one of those occurrences is actually a, what they call a, a Christophany, Christophany, which was a, an appearance of Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus. You remember, Jesus has always been, so he was around. It was so... It was a pre-incarnate Jesus, but um, however it works, the Lord shows up, deals with Abraham, and it's a visible manifestation. The Lord comes and with two angels, and the three of them to Abraham just look like three guys that show up, uh, and um, we're going to watch what happens in the encounter, but what we know and what we'll see is that they've come from heaven to give Abraham and Sarah an announcement that at the same time next year, Sarah would give birth to the promised son. So a pretty, pretty intense. When you think about it now, um, God shows up in some sort of form that looks like a guy, uh, looks like a human, and tells them, big news. Hey, you know that son I told you about? Next year, this time, you'll have him. Big deal. So, so announcements of sons like that. We'll see another big announcement of a son coming. It's a lot of these things. All these things are foreshadowing other things. But just so you know, so, so God shows up and makes a pretty significant announcement. He comes with two angels. And uh, he's also got some business to deal with. Um, he wanted to do that, but he's, he's been hearing about some bad stuff happening in Sodom, and he's got to go and check that out too. So that's what's going to happen. Genesis 18, 1 through 33. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I found favor in your eyes, my Lord. Now, when he says my Lord there, you'll, in your, whatever translation you've got, you'll notice it's lowercase l, um, and the, the, the word is actually Adonai there. Um, and so it's not a reference to Jehovah, God, who will be, when the, later on you'll see the text change to a capital L. When the realization happens... There's a, there's a change, all right? 
If I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, so it was just sort of a nice, respectful way of addressing somebody. Do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come uh, to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. And then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it, hurried to prepare it. He brought some uh, curds and milk and the calf had been prepared and they uh, set those before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where's your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent. He said, then the Lord, notice should be a change in text. And the Lord, Jehovah, said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and my master's old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. Isn't it funny when we tell God, I didn't do that? No, I, not me, God. You've never done that. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. And the men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare that place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the Sodom, Sodom, in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I'll not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left. And Abraham returned home, and blessed be the word of the Lord. So, um, some interesting things, I think, that, that we take from this. Uh, that are important. Um, first few verses there. Um, Abraham, I want you to make sure you see how eager Abraham was to show hospitality to these three visitors. Even before he realized who they were, he, he wanted to show them hospitality, great hospitality. In Abraham's day, a person's reputation 
was largely connected to his hospitality, the, the sharing of food and, and treating um, wanderers um, well in the process. So even strangers would be treated as highly honored guests. And you, you, you need to get the picture of this, that Abraham, Abraham would sit um, there in, in, um, in this place in the heat of the day um, not only to enjoy the coolness of the air that would come through in this particular process where he was, but if he saw any weary and exhausted travelers, he could invite them to rest and refresh themselves. And, and hospitality was a significant thing then, and it's an extremely significant thing now. And um, I think it ties into several things. Now, here... At the vineyard, if you've been here for any time, you, you'll hear me say from time to time the three sort of things that we, part of our mission that we concentrate on. I call them radical things. And, and I talk about the fact that we have a radical message. So you'll hear me talking about the good news here often. We have this amazing, wonderful news that God has given us. Um, that we need to be people that practice radical generosity. That's hopefully ringing a bell with some of you. We need to be extremely generous with the world around us because... Unfortunately, the culture has this bad picture of the church as being the opposite of generous, that really all we ever want is people's money. And, and so we have to break down that, that barrier has kept a lot of people from coming to check things out. So we, we're sort of constantly chipping away at that. And you'll watch us be generous here all the time. We do all sorts of stuff. And you'll, you know, we, we do it for free. Or we give it, you know, we do a dollar car wash, we give people a dollar. We take the ice cream truck out. We give away ice cream. We get all this stuff. We do that because we, we think it's important. God has called us to be a generous people. And then the third thing I always tell you to that is we're called to be a people of radical hospitality. That, that we want to make people comfortable when they come here. That we want people to um, be able to have, you know, access to a free meal and free coffee when we, you know, we have that going on and, and whatever else is going on. We do breakfast. We do lunches. We do dinners. Um, uh, we think it's an important part of, of what makes the church the church. And that um, uh, we had one of these discussions in Bible Institute the other night. The, the idea of getting together and having a meal is very much closer to communion, the original communion that was celebrated in Acts, than, than often what we do with communion. Because um, there's something about it that um, much fellowship takes place over a meal. Um, much connection happens over a meal. Um, and, so you, and you see Jesus doing that all the time, sitting and eating. With, there's something that happens. And, the, you know, we, we, we're waiting for, a, um, you know, the, the, the wedding feast. Uh, um, you know, the idea of that whole process runs throughout the Scripture. And so the idea of being hospitable is very important and needs to be a part of what we are. And that, you know, I, I think it's very much a golden rule thing, um, you know, do to others what you would have them do to you. And this was particularly true in, um, in the desert and uh, in this time in history that this was a very important part. And as I said, the reputations were built on how hospitable you were. I love it. Um, I, I, read, I, read, um, I read about some of the customs of the time in the past and they would have a custom that I think it was very cool where when a thirsty traveler would come a traveler come they were always thirsty and they would give them something to drink usually you know because water wasn't good it was would be wine and uh, they would give them wine and um, to show that they really enjoyed the company um, as they drank the wine they would keep the glass filled um, but when they were done being hospitable because you know the time comes right most of you know that if you've ever had people over there's a time when you're like will these people never leave 
You've never had that thought. Okay. I wish you would never go. Anyway, they would, uh, they would quit filling the glass. And your glass would be empty. And if you emptied your glass and it sat there for a little while empty, you, you got the hint that, hey, it's time for us to move along. Uh, and uh, I sort of like that. One of the reasons I like that, though, is it, it connects with my picture of communion. Um, you know, when we start to take communion, um, that, that um, the cup never runs out. The cup's always full, always overflowing, always full, always there, always present. That's a picture of the love of God for us. So um, this idea of hospitality, I think, is really important, and I want you to take that from watching what Abraham did and how he did. And also, there's a verse uh, that I think, you know, in Hebrews 13, which says, you know, um, don't forget to entertain strangers because some have actually entertained angels without even knowing it. And so uh, that's why it's a pretty good thing to do. You never know when you, got a, when you got an angel come by. You just never know. I've told you that. I tell you that story about the, the you guys have heard my turkey fry story, right? Years ago, when we first started doing this, we do these big turkey, well, we did big turkey fries. We do big turkey dinners now. We, um, we used to deep fry turkeys, but it got to be so many turkeys, we had to come up with another plan recently because we were doing, when it got over 50 deep fried turkeys, I just said, okay, it's not safe. Um, that's a lot. It's, not, it's, like, it's like rockets back there and stuff. So, but the, the first time we ever did a big turkey dinner like that, we, did, we deep fried 12 turkeys. I said, let's invite people in and see what happens. And uh, that, like I said, built up to 50, and we went from 100 people coming to, last year, over 700 people came for dinner and the concert and all that other stuff. Um, but after that first year, we deep fried those 12 turkeys, and me and another guy did it. And it was hard to deep fry 12 turkeys. You have to remember how big much they weigh. Um, you have to cook them three minutes a pound. You have, to, you have to monitor the temperature of the grease, which changes every time you put a turkey in it. You have to make sure the turkey is completely thawed because if you put any partially frozen turkey in there, it explodes. It's a huge deal. And, you know, I'm, I'm in the midst of this thinking, why, have I, why in the world did I do this? Everybody had a great time, but I'm like, ah. And then it's coming around next year, and, and I'm thinking, I think I'm just going to cancel it. Maybe nobody will remember. I didn't, I didn't necessarily sign up for... Number two, I'll never forget this. We were up, we were practicing um, for, uh, I think we were practicing for a Sunday, and a guy walks in, and uh, I'd never seen him before. He, he said, hey, uh, I'm Dave, yeah? I, I didn't know who he was. And he said, I'm a professional turkey fryer. I mean, get out of here. I didn't know, did you know there was such a thing? I didn't even know there was such a thing. At the time, I was like, get out of here. He said, no, no. He said, listen, I, I heard that you did that thing, and uh, I'm, I'm going to come, and I'm going to deep fry your turkeys this year. I'm going to do it for free. I just want to be a part. And I was like, you serious? He goes, yeah, I'm serious. So he turned around and left, and then I went to those guys, and I think, hey, that might have been an angel. <laughs> because God knows I was like, I don't want to do it, but I know I got to do it, and and he sent an angel to take it out. Now, since then, Dave comes every Sunday. He's not an angel, but he's a really good guy. But he, he could have been. You just don't know. You never know. So, um, see, I see that in the hospitality. Now, another big thing, moving down, because he sort of has this conversation. Verse 14, I love what God, he says, the Lord says this, is anything too hard for the Lord? I love that. That's, a, that's one of those things you should remember. That's, go ahead and take that one in. Is anything too hard for the Lord in verse 14 because it reveals much about God 
And I think one of the things you can do, make a habit of inserting your specific needs at any time into that question. Um, is this day in my life too hard for the Lord? Is this habit I'm trying to break too hard for the Lord? Is this communication problem I'm having too hard for the Lord? And ask it in such a way that, that it reminds you that God is personally involved in your life and, and wants you to ask for his help. And I think it's just one of those powerful verses. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is this too hard for the Lord? Of course not. But I, I think sometimes we forget and we start thinking like whatever situation we're in is too hard for the Lord. It's not. He's the Lord. Now verse 15, and we laughed about this, um, but Sarah lied when she was confronted with laughing. And, and uh, I, I think it, it said she was afraid. She was afraid of being discovered. She was afraid of how she was going to look. And I think that often is sort of one of the motivators for why um, we have a tendency sometimes to lie. Um, we, we would rather lie sometimes than think that we're going to look bad or we're afraid of what, you know, what might happen. And um, I think we get afraid that our sort of inner thoughts and emotions um, will be exposed um, or our wrongdoings discovered. But, but here's the thing that we all need to be working on. Uh, and, and, and hopefully you figured this out. Lying always causes greater complications than telling the truth, always. And it, it always brings more problems, always. And, um, you know, it's just, it's not, it's not worth it. Um, but there's a tendency, we, it's sort of, it's amazing to watch it develop in kids too. It's not like you teach kids how to lie. At least I don't think we do on purpose. But um, it's amazing to watch kids, how they can fabricate something when they're, and you're, you're, you, it fascinates me when I see it. I'm like, wow, that's fascinating. I know you're lying, but still, it fascinates me. <laughs> you always want to go, if you're going to lie, get better at it, please. But I don't really mean that. Um, just tell the truth. It's so much easier to tell the truth. You'll get spots sometimes. Sometimes it's uncomfortable, but it's always the right thing to do. And, and uh, you know, Sarah could have just said, it was the Lord. What was he going to do? You're right. I laughed because I'm, I'm kind of doubtful. I've been waiting 20-some years, God. And, I, you know, I hope it's true. But I mean, you get where, you know, that would, that would be way more honest than I didn't laugh, right? But. That's where it's at. I just thought it was worth looking at. You know, wherever you can, it's something God's working on. In the, in the last part of the chapter, um, what you need to see is that Abraham is interceding for Sodom. A Abraham is interceding for this wicked city. And um, it's, he's not arguing with the Lord. He's, he comes in great humility, and you can see as he's presenting his case. He's, he's extremely humble. And he asked the Lord, listen, because the Lord shares with him, this is what I've got to do. The outcry is so great, it's got to be dealt with. It just can't continue. Um, and he said, I've, I've heard the outcry. I'm actually going to go and... God, the graciousness of God. They, these people have an opportunity to repent, even at this point in time. God's checking it out for himself. Um, and certainly he knows what's going on. But as part of this encounter with Abraham, um, Abraham says, listen, if there's 50 people in that... Big city now. 50. If there's 50 people, wouldn't you, would you spare it for 50? God says, sure, I'd spare it for 50. And then they sort of negotiate this deal down, in great humility, down to 10. Do you ever wonder why you think he stopped at 10? I have a thought. I think he thought that Lot had at least 10 people in his family and that, that Lot's family should be, should be enough to save the city. That hopefully Lot was enough of a remnant 
that it would save the city. But, um, but Lot has been polluted as the rest of them because there ain't, pardon me, there isn't 10. There isn't 10 in the city. Not 10. Um, so then you think, well, is God being unfair? You know, um, did he plan to uh, destroy the, the innocent with the guilty? And on the contrary, if, if you look, his, his fairness stands out. He agrees to spare the city if 10 innocent people live there. Um, he shows great mercy towards Lot. Um, and, and apparently, he's the only one in the city that had any kind of relationship with God, and even that was questionable because we've seen it already. You've seen Lot go his own way, do his own thing time after time. He shows great patience towards Lot. He actually has to force Lot to leave Sodom before it's too late. So you, you need to see the, the, the kindness of God even in the midst of that situation. And I also think you need to see that, that God shows Abraham that asking for anything is allowed with the understanding that God's answers come from God's perspective. They're not always in harmony with our expectations for, for you know, he knows the whole story. But, but I want you to see how important it is um, that Abraham interceded for Sodom, that, that Abraham cared for the city. He cared for the people in the city. He, he wanted the best. He, he was like, God, is there 50? If there's 10, would you save the city? And, and so, um, you know, he, Abraham couldn't prevent the, the, the people from Sodom against, from sinning against God. But he could pray for them and he could intercede for them. He could pray for their, pray for their souls and plead, you know, um, for mitigation of judgment. And so he, he intercedes for the transgressors and, and God is pleased with the whole process. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, God wants to see people repent. God's heart is, is for everyone to, to, to come and know him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son to whoever believes in him. Should, you know, not perish, have eternal life. That, that, that's the heart of God. But people choose. People choose not to be in relationship with God. Remember, that's the, God's put in, you, you think, well, God, God gives everybody the choice in this life to choose how they're going to spend eternity. And people that choose in this life to spend eternity with him, spend eternity with him. People who choose not to spend this life with God have made the choice for eternity. They, their choice. God just honors it. I don't think God wants it, enjoys it, looks forward to it, has any part, you know, wants everyone to choose to spend life with him, but he gives everyone the choice, and then he honors the choice, and that's what happens. And, and here again, these, they had chance, and, um, but it had to be dealt with. So that's what happens in Genesis 18. I think it's enough for today, and we'll, uh, we'll be done there. If you're watching my video, thank you for watching. Appreciate you doing that. Look forward to seeing you next time.